You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. I'm a student here at Mill Creek. Today's passage is found in the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 14 through 23. The passage is found at the Chairback Bibles in front of you on page 828. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on this table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question another, one another, which of them could it be who was going to do this? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this wonderful day. We get together here today and worship you. I pray that you're with Pastor Jonathan as he preaches your word. Guide our ears to hear and our hearts to listen. And in your name we pray. Amen. In the 90s, I grew up in a suburb outside of Chicago. Now, I'm sure the term Chicago brings up a lot of images for you, but when it comes to Chicago in the 90s, usually people are thinking of one thing, and that's basketball. Now, I have to tell you, my family and I, we're not basketball fans. We were a wrestling family. Basketball wasn't on our radar, but in the 90s, we watched basketball. And that's all because of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls winning six NBA championships. Now, I don't want to stir up any controversy for you here this morning by getting into the LeBron James, Michael Jordan debate, which one's better. Clearly, it's Michael Jordan. <laughs> that's, that's not the point, though. That's not the point. The, the point I want to make for you is that even though Michael Jordan is regarded as the greatest basketball player of all time by many, without the Bulls and, and all the different components that made up that team, Michael Jordan might have just been another great basketball player. There were dozens of things that had to work together to come into place to secure his legacy and the legacy of the team that is now regarded as one of the greatest in NBA history. I mean, back in the 80s when Jordan was recruited, the Bulls were terrible. And even with his great talent, they were still were nowhere near the best team in the NBA. But that all changed when they brought on a new general manager called Jerry Krause. Now, Krause was a wizard when it came to drafting and making trades. Uh, He was like a chess player, moving all the right pieces in place in order to bring out the best in his team and his players. And when he came on, the talent on the team skyrocketed. But on top of that, all these players coming in to play with Michael Jordan had to rise to the occasion and know their position in the team. 
mean, there was Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant and Dennis Rodman and all these players who had to come in and take second seat knowing that Michael Jordan would always be the primetime player. And of course, in order to bring all these players together, you needed a brilliant coaching mind. And they, the Bulls secured that when they hired a guy named Phil Jackson. Now, Jackson was hired simply because he could connect well with Michael Jordan. But when they got in Jackson was a, was a sharp mind who knew how to bring out the best in all of his players. On top of that, he brought a college basketball te- uh, technique that he integrated into his offense that would actually reshape the way the Bulls and the NBA played basketball. The point, once again, is that all of these components needed to fit together to secure Jordan's legacy. Without the 90s Bulls, Michael Jordan might have been just another great player. But we know a different story. We see all these tales of all these great players stepping up and filling their roles and doing what they're supposed to. And even though I'm not a basketball fan, I like to see how the pieces all fit together. And it makes me appreciate even more the story of salvation that we see in the Bible. You see, this story wasn't just a few years in the making. It wasn't just a few brilliant minds. It wasn't even a few millennia in the making. The story of salvation was planned before the dawn of creation. Before the dawn of creation, God had determined that Christ would come and die for you. And what I want you to see this morning is that though we typically think of salvation as being related to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's a broader picture. And certainly what Jesus did on the cross is integral. Without it, God's plan of salvation doesn't work. But God has been working since the dawn of time and is still working now to bring about his plan of salvation into your life. I want you to see that in our text here this morning. And as we see a wider picture of God's story of salvation, I want you to see how you fit in the picture and why we this morning can have hope in Jesus Christ. With that in mind, please open up your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 22, verses 1 to 38. As we dive into our text this morning, we're going to be taking a look at two big ideas. The first big idea is the plan of salvation. Now, as we walk through this first portion of of the text, I want to show you three puzzle pieces that are fitting together to give us a broader picture of God's plan of salvation here in the book of Luke. The first puzzle piece is number one, betrayal. And we see this betrayal playing out in verses one to six. And this betrayal began here in verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Now, throughout Luke's gospel, one thing he's been pointing out for us is the opposition that Jesus has been facing from the religious leaders. They were upset, number one, because Jesus didn't fit the picture of the Messiah the way they wanted him to fit the picture of Messiah. They had this idea of this individual coming and starting a war with Rome, but Jesus didn't do that. But they were also upset because all the people who had traditionally followed after the religious leaders were now following Jesus. 
So all their honor and prestige was now going in a different direction. So they wanted to kill Jesus. But that brought about another problem. Because all these people who had left the religious leaders and now following Jesus were all gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And every time Jesus went out into public, all these people would gather around him. So it would have been impossible for the religious leaders to kill Jesus without getting him alone. As we see in the text, that opportunity fell right into their laps. Because what we learn in verse 3 is that a man named Judas, one of Jesus' closest followers, had determined in his heart to betray Jesus. Now, you'll note here in verse 3 that it says that Satan entered into Jesus. Or sorry, Satan entered into Judas, not Jesus. Now, we should not take that to mean that Judas was not responsible for his actions. Judas is completely responsible for the things that he did. He has to answer for the crimes that he committed against the God of creation. But what Luke is doing here is is showing us a broader picture. He's showing us that 2,000 years ago, Jesus wasn't just betrayed by one of his closest followers. Jesus was fighting a cosmic battle. A battle against Satan himself, against all the powers of darkness. All of that is going on in Judas's betrayal. But this betrayal that's happening here in the text is not Judas alone. In a sense, Jesus has been betrayed by all of Israel. You see, up into this point in history, we've seen that Israel was a nation chosen by God, but they rejected God. Rather than accepting his rule and authority in their lives, they turned to their own commandments, their own desires, and turned against the God who loved them. And we could take a look at this text and think that maybe somehow God had had failed in the fact that his people were turning against him. But what Luke is showing us is this is happening exactly as God designed it to happen. You see, because this betrayal happening from the nation of Israel is doing something. It is causing God to shift his focus from a single nation and outward to all the nations of the earth. And while we won't see that play out here in the book of Acts, or in the book of Luke, we will see that play out all throughout the book of Luke, how God will use Israel's mistakes and also the faithful people of Israel to spread the gospel to the nations. God always had in mind to spread his message outward from the people of Israel to the nations. And that's why this first component, this first uh, puzzle piece of salvation is so important here in our text. Let's move on to the second. The second puzzle piece we see here is the setting of the table of history. In verses 7 to 13, Jesus instructs his disciples to go prepare for the Passover feast. And then he gives them these instructions to do so. He says in verse 10 to 12, Behold, when you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, uh, he will show you a large room furnished, prepare it there. Now, these instructions here are oddly specific. 
Some have even concluded that Jesus must have gone ahead of his disciples and made plans ahead of time. But I think that explanation is missing the point of what's going on here in Luke. You see, ever since Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem, we've been seeing him orchestrate history. He's been moving pieces in the right directions so that his death and execution will come about exactly as God planned it. And now we're seeing that here as he prepares the Passover feast. In the same way that his disciples are preparing this Passover meal and setting of the table, Jesus has been setting the table of history. What Luke wants us to understand, to see here in the text, is that Jesus did not stumble into his execution. Even though Jesus would be wrongfully accused, arrested, condemned, mocked, beaten, and killed, Jesus is completely in control. This is God's plan. He is showing us here that even in all of this, even in this dark moment, as Jesus dies, Jesus is in control. Because God has always been orchestrating history. Even long before the birth of Christ, even long before the Passover began, God has been directing the course of history so that Jesus would die on the cross for you. And we'll see that more fully as we look at our third and final puzzle piece here in this first section of text. Number three is the Passover lamb. Now, the Passover has been mentioned a few times in our text already, so let me give you a little explanation of the context behind this feast. So the, the Passover is a celebration that God's people did every year, celebrating the, the freedom that they received from Egypt thousands of years earlier. Long ago, the, the Israelites were slaves in the nation of Egypt, and God demanded that the Pharaoh let them go. And when Pharaoh refused to do so, God sent ten devastating plagues to rock the nation. In the last and final plague, God sent a death shadow to sweep through the streets of Egypt in order to kill the firstborn in every household except the household of the people of Israel. God instructed them that they were to slaughter a lamb and eat unleavened bread in preparation to flee from the nation. And the blood of that lamb, they were to wipe on the doorposts so that when the death shadow came through the city, it would pass over their households and they would be spared from death. So that's the context we see happening here. And that's the Passover feast that they are celebrating here in our text. I want to point out for you the details of how this is going down because there's four important things that Jesus does for us here in our text. Number one, he says that he desires to eat this Passover feast, but won't do so until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Second, he took a cup of wine and instructed his disciples to divide it amongst themselves and said, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Three, Jesus took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And fourth and finally, Jesus says in verses 20 to 22, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. So what's going on here? 
Well, first and foremost, what Jesus is doing here is establishing a new covenant with his people. Not like the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant that was based on the works of God's people. But a new covenant that is based on the work of God. And by giving him, giving them these signs, the breaking of the bread and the pouring out of the blood, Jesus is saying that I am inaugurating this covenant based on the breaking of my flesh and the pouring out of my blood. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am becoming the new Passover lamb. In the same way that God saved his people from death all those years ago in Egypt by the blood and the flesh of an animal, God is now saving his people by the flesh and blood of his son. Jesus pouring out his blood and breaking his flesh for you. Jesus dying on your behalf. We're seeing that even though Christ's work was accomplished on the cross, even though it was poured out in a single moment of history, God had been preparing this from long ago. Christ always had in mind that he was going to die for you. That's God's plan of salvation. God's plan that even though we were sinners who were far off, though though we were in a nation that had rebelled against God and turned against his commandments, Jesus had determined in his heart that he would die for your sake, that you too could receive salvation. Our confidence this morning in the cross is not just that Jesus willingly died for us. Our confidence is that Jesus saw us long ago, every sin we ever committed and decided to die. Every sin that you've ever committed poured out on Jesus. That is God's plan of salvation. That is our hope and our confidence. That's what we believe that Jesus did 2,000 years ago. But I also want to make clear this morning that Jesus' work did not end on the cross. Though salvation was completely accomplished in Jesus' work, God is still applying that work of salvation to you this morning who believe. Which brings us to our second big idea from our text this morning. The application of salvation. Now, like the first, we'll be looking at three different puzzle pieces from our text that help us understand how God applies salvation to the life of believers. The first puzzle piece we are seeing here is, number one, the exaltation of the lowly. As we turn and look to verse 24, we find Jesus walking with his disciples sometime after the Passover feast, and they're arguing about who's the greatest. Now, I'm certain this is probably a moment they want to get back. (laughs) Jesus has literally just said, I'm going to die for you. And they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. You know, what they want here is honor and prestige and position and authority. But what Jesus wants to point out for them is this is how the world operates. He says this in verse 25. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. 
Jesus' point is that the Gentile kings, the kings of the nations, use their power and a position to, uh, to oppress those who serve them. And benefactors are those who use their, their wealth and power in order to gain prestige and honor. Both of these are examples of people who want authority and position so that they can esteem themselves at the expense of others. This isn't how God wants his disciples to act. That's why Jesus responds with this in verses 26 to 27. But not so with you. Rather that the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus' statement here feels backwards. And of course, it is backwards to the world around us. But that's part of Jesus' point. You're not supposed to be like the rest of the world. You're not supposed to seek authority the way they seek authority. And not that seeking authority is wrong, but seeking authority in order to build ourselves up and gain honor is not how God wants his community to act. God wants us to be humble. God wants us to serve one another. In the first century, part of a servant's role wasn't just physical service. It was about ascribing honor and prestige to the person you were serving. So for us this morning, when we have the call to serve one another, it's not just a call to physical service. It's a call to honor one another around us. It's a call to build up the people in our community. Not so that we can gain honor ourselves, so that we can bless the Lord. Knowing that there's none of us here who deserve the honor that God can give. But Jesus goes on to say that if we are willing to humble ourselves, we will be exalted in heaven. Look at how he says it in verse 28 to 30. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, what Jesus is saying is because you have humbly walked beside me in my trials and my suffering, because you have left your homes and your family for my sake, you will be exalted in the heavenly kingdom. That is God's design. And that has always been God's design. We see that all throughout the Bible. In Proverbs 29, verse 23, it says, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Or Psalm 138, verse 6, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Or James 4.10 in the New Testament, Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. You see, church, what we have to understand this morning, what Jesus' point here this morning, is that none of us deserve honor. None of us deserve salvation. And the only way to actually receive it, to gain access to the good things that God has to offer, is to realize our inadequacy, to realize our lowliness, realize that we are so undeserved of that salvation. 
And if you're not willing to humble yourself before the Lord, he will humble you. That is how God applies his work of salvation to our lives. Not in our pride boasting, but those of us here who know that we truly don't deserve the gifts of the Lord because God exalts the lowly. That's the first puzzle piece we see in the text. The second puzzle piece is Jesus' intercession. As we move forward in the text, we see that Jesus turns from his disciples as a whole and now sets his focus on Peter. And he says this in verse 31 to 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have denied me three times. This is another example in our text of Jesus predicting the future in specific detail. Once again, showing that the course of the things playing out in the week of the Passion are happening exactly as God determined them to happen. But I want you to focus your attention in on Jesus' original statement. He said, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed that your faith may not fail. This is some pretty scary stuff. What Jesus is telling Peter, the implications here in the text, is that if that Jesus had not interceded on his half, Satan would have destroyed him. Sifting weed is like saying turning into dust. It says Satan demanded to destroy you. And while Peter believed that he could remain in Christ based on his own strength, Jesus is making it clear to Peter that you cannot protect yourself. But you are desperate for Jesus to intercede on your behalf. And though while Peter draws the brunt of the focus here in the text, I want to show you also that Jesus has in mind all of his disciples. Well, we don't get this here in the English translation. In the original Greek, this word you is always used in the plural. Satan demanded all of you. And I prayed for all of you. Jesus, in other words, is saying that none of his disciples would have made it through the week of the crucifixion if Jesus were not praying on their behalf. And the same can be true of us this morning. Well, we may lead ourselves to believe that it's our faith that brings us to salvation. It is Christ alone who saves us. And certainly each and every one of us here have a responsibility to respond to Jesus and to cling to him for salvation. But what Jesus is revealing is that your faith isn't strong enough. Your desire to follow isn't strong enough. Only Jesus is strong enough. But the assurance that we have here in this text this morning is that if you do have faith, Jesus is interceding on your behalf that he will bring you fully to salvation. Jesus, even now, is praying for you. 
And even though Satan demands all of us, there's nothing that can rob us from the hands of our Savior. When Jesus intercedes, there is nothing that can stop him. And he proves that on the cross. But our hope this morning is not to hope in ourselves, but to set our eyes fully on Jesus, knowing that this world is against us. Which brings us to the final puzzle piece in the second section of our text this morning. Number three is the rejection by the world. As we finish out our text, Jesus gives his disciples some final instructions to prepare for what's to come. And he begins by asking this question. He says, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Jesus' question here is a reference to chapter 9 in Luke and chapter 10. Both occasions, Jesus sent out his disciples to preach the good news of the coming of the kingdom of heaven. On both occasions, Jesus instructed them to take nothing with them, but to trust that God would provide for them through the goodwill of others. Now, however, things have changed, and Jesus gives them a new instruction in verse 36 to 38. He says, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has his fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So what's happening here in the text? Why did Jesus once tell them to bring nothing with you, but now to be prepared as you go out? Well, Jesus' point is that things are going to change. Because there's a time when Jesus' disciples were accepted by the world around them. There's a time when people believed that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. A man sent by God to save the nations and save the peoples. But all that's going to change. Leading up to the crucifixion, Jesus was accepted, but now he is going to be counted as a transgressor, as a sinner, as a man condemned. And likewise, as hatred stirs up for Jesus, that same sort of oppression and hostility is now going to turn to Jesus' disciples, and they need to be ready. Where once they were accepted by the world, now they will be despised. And while this may feel like a horrible change of events, something that we don't desire upon ourselves, what I need to point out for you is that what Jesus has told us already in the book of Luke is that God uses the hostility of the world to sanctify his people, to make them holy. God uses this rejection to separate out a people for himself according to his own possession, that we would be made in the likeness of Jesus. We call it sanctification. Sanctification is, uh, is the work of Jesus that was uh, won on the cross, applied to the lives of believers as they walk in faith. God is sanctifying you. And God is sanctifying you through all of these puzzle pieces that we see here in the text. 
God uses his humility as Christ intercedes on our behalf to separate us out of the world to make us more like Jesus. And as we zoom outward from the cross, moving beyond Christ's work, as it's applied to our lives today, we see that God is still working out his plan of salvation. And he's working it in you. God desires for you to be holy. And so God is taking what Christ did on the cross, that death, burial, and resurrection, and applying it to your life to change you and transform you. That we would be more like Jesus. This is the broad picture of salvation we are seeing here in our text. A picture that began long ago before the dawn of creation. A picture that was played out in Egypt many centuries ago. A picture that was secured on the cross when Jesus died on your behalf. And is now working in your life here today. God had all of it in mind when he sent Jesus to die for you. So our confidence this morning is not in the resolve of our faith. It's not in our strength to follow after Scripture. It's not in our ability to believe. It's only in Jesus. Because Jesus did all of it for you. So the question for us this morning is how do we fit into this grand story of salvation? To bring us back to the metaphor of the Chicago Bulls, I'm pretty sure all of us can assume we're not Michael Jordan. Probably not Scottie Pippen. Probably not Jerry Krause or Phil Jackson. But I also want you to understand that we're not even the towel boy or the janitor. We're the lowly fan who wears a jersey and has no right even to be in the stadium. We have no part in Christ's victory. We have no part in his conquering of death. But I'm certain this morning that though the Bulls probably didn't have any of us in mind when they won that championship all those years ago, I am certain that Jesus had you in mind when he died on the cross. Jesus was thinking of you. And though we have no right to that gift of salvation, no ability to claim it on our own, Jesus has freely given us the gift that he won on the cross. Jesus is handing you his victory, even though we have no right to be on that team. Jesus died for you. And that is our confidence, church. That is our hope, and that is our salvation. And our clear call from our passage this morning is to remember. Remember that Jesus died for sinners. Remember that Jesus' flesh was broken for you. Remember that his blood was poured out so that we could be called righteous even though we deserve to be called sinners. That's what we do this morning as we, get, we prepare for the time of communion. As we take 
the drink, and the bread. These are representative signs of what Jesus did on the cross, that his flesh and blood were broken. And so we are called to remember. And as we invite the band up this morning, I invite you to consider that work of salvation. Consider the fact that you are so undeserving of the gift of the life of Jesus. But also remember that before the dawn of creation, Jesus planned to give this gift to you. So as we prepare to take this gift, I ask you to get your hearts ready. Prepare your minds to receive the body and the blood of Jesus. If you're a believer this morning, I invite you to come take this gift with us. But I also warn you, if you're a believer who's living in unrepentant sin, to first confess before the Lord before you take these elements. And if there's a brother here that you have sinned against, I would encourage you to first ask for forgiveness before taking this beautiful gift of salvation. And for those of you here this morning who are not followers of Jesus Christ, I would ask you to pray. Pray and respond to this message you've heard this morning. And you first and foremost need to know that there's nothing that you can do to deserve God's gift of salvation. But if you're willing to respond to Jesus, that salvation is for you here this morning. But now as we get ready and the band plays, I invite you to come up and receive the elements as we prepare to take this gift together. Come as you are ready. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.